excited to be in church. Come on. You're grateful and thankful. Well, I'm thankful that you're here at church, and I'm thankful for all of you that are joining us right now at every City First Anywhere location, Cape Coral, God Behind Bars, every single one of you. I'm so glad that you are here, and you know what? This weekend, it's uh, kind of like Thanksgiving weekend, and uh, I just want you to know that Jen and I are very thankful for each and every one of you from wherever you are joining us today. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Let's take a vote on something. How many of you would say that uh, turkey dinner on Thanksgiving is better than the leftovers, all right? Uh, raise your hand, all right? How many of you think that leftovers are better than actually the turkey dinner, right? Yeah, the leftovers won. The leftovers won. I agree with you on that one. Uh, so anyway, hopefully you're not in a turkey stupor this morning, though. And uh, we are basically finishing out this series called Do Not Disturb. And we're talking about how to find times of strategic disconnection in the midst of this crazy, crazy culture of ours. And it's vitally important that we do that. We disconnect with Jesus because there we find rest, we find health, we find creativity, productivity, and focus when we strategically disconnect and refuel, you could say, with Jesus, and then go out and we have to go to work and family and all those other things. Because this is what I know, the rested you is the best you. Let me say it again, the rested you is the best you. The worst version of you is the stressed you, all right, or the exhausted version of you. In fact, if you're depleted, nobody wins. Uh, not only do you not win, but your marriage doesn't win, your family doesn't win, your career doesn't win, your friendships don't win. So we here at City First, we want you to win, all right? And the way to win is to find strategic disconnection with Jesus and to find rest and focus on what is really important. And in the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about um, the Garden of Eden. And before uh, any sin or, or anything entered the world that was negative, uh, God created this perfect paradise, and he created four rivers. And I just think it's interesting because each of these rivers have a name and they have a meaning. And if you go back and, and you kind of go, okay, well, there, there has to be original intent here. There has to be something that kind of needs to be unearthed, you could say, as to why God created these rivers for refreshment and nourishment. And it's just interesting that he did this before there was this thing called stress that most of us carry around day in and day out. And so we talked about these four rivers that were refreshing and brought nourishment. And the first one was called the Pishan. And the Pishan basically was uh, meaning increase. And so when you find uh, communion with Jesus, disconnection with Jesus, then guess what? You actually find increase in your life. The next one is the Gihan, and that is meeting bursting forth, or I talked about breakthrough. So when you get alone with Jesus, your life has breakthrough. The third one, Jen talked about last week, and it was the Tigris. It means rapids. And, uh, and, and she kind of turned it on its head a little bit. And she talked about that, that God is many times like a rushing rapid that overflows the boundaries that we've created for him. And so in other words, get God out of the box. 
and allow him to overflow into your life. And this week, the fourth river I want to talk about is the Euphrates. And uh, really, what it means is it means fruitfulness. In other words, how can we have a fruitful life? And today I want to show you how when you strategically disconnect with Jesus, you will have a life that is full of fruit, or in other words, fruitful. And I believe each and every one of us want this. I believe each and every one of us want a life that is full of meaning and significance and leaves a legacy. In other words, I want a life that counts, and I think you do too. And, and guess what? God does also. And so we want to talk about that today. You know, um, recently, within the last 20 years, there's a brand new science, you could say, that is being studied, and it's called positive psychology. And in fact, in 2004, Harvard University started a class called positive psychology, and literally, the class maxed out almost overnight. It became, in that season, the most popular class at Harvard, and there were 1,400 students that enrolled like that. And, and really, the class was focused on how to have a meaningful and a positive and a flourishing life. And I thought, that's interesting. Isn't it interesting that they presented this class about how to have a meaningful life, and overnight, it maxed out? It speaks to something inside of each and every one of us, whether we're a college-age person or we are at retirement age, that we want to have a life that's meaningful. We want to have a life, you could say, that's full of purpose. We want to have, what I want to talk about today, a fruitful life. And the opposite of a fruitful life is a life that you waste. You waste your time, your talent, your ability, your opportunities, and most of all, you waste the focus of your soul on things that really don't matter. So we want to talk about how to have a fruitful life. And we're going to look at uh, the book of Psalms today. Um, some of you uh, may have read uh, some of the Psalms before. Uh, these are basically uh, songs or poetry that are found in the Old Testament by various, various authors. And this one uh, that I want to focus on today is Psalm chapter 1. All right? It's the very first one. kind of sets the tone for the whole book. All right, Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, it reads like this. It says, blessed. Turn to the person next to you and say blessed. All right? I think all of us want to be blessed. What is that word blessed? I inserted this word all right, in parentheses, okay, I inserted what the original Hebrew word blessed means. It means this, happy. And in fact, it doesn't just mean happy, it means now happy. Presently happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. What does that mean, the counsel of the wicked? It means that you're not taking advice from those that are far from faith and wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers. What does that mean? We don't use the word scoff a lot. This is the English standard version of the Bible, so it uses a little old English kind of uh, you know, language. But what does it mean to be a scoffer? It means that you're a cynic, that you're critical, that you're sarcastic. And so blessed is the person who doesn't sit with those that are cynical, but his delight is in the law or in the instructions of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now listen to this. He is like a tree planted where? In a desert? No. Planted by streams of water. Very important. Streams of water. And what happens? And basically, it yields its fruit in its season. 
In other words, that the tree is not just planted by water, but actually produces fruit. In other words, it is fruitful. His life is fruitful. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Wouldn't you like to have a life that in all that you do, you prosper? This is what I know about the Bible. When the Bible makes promises like this, or gives instructions, it means it is attainable. It, it, it's not, the Bible's not just saying this so that we have a pipe dream, all right? The, the Bible's saying this because it means this is attainable, that we can live a life that truly, in all that we do, prospers. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have hardship. It doesn't mean that we're going to have difficult seasons. But overall, 30,000 foot, we're going to have a life that prospers. And then it goes on to say, but the wicked are not so. But they are like chaff that the wind drives away. What is chaff? Well, basically, um, if you have grain, uh, there's the seed and there's the husk, all right? And basically, the farmer has to separate the seed from the husk. And so the husk, what, what is that? That's the chaff. It's basically just thrown away. Um, and so really what the Bible's saying here is that a wicked person, the fruit of their life is basically like the husk that's just thrown away but rather the righteous person that is planted by living water has a life that produces fruit, that guess what, it prospers all the time, and that the seed is there, and the chaff is not what their fruit is, but rather the seed is their fruit. I love how the message paraphrase puts it. it says this, that you're a tree replanted in Eden. This is full circle here. You see what I mean? I'm talking about these rivers in Eden. So guess what? If you're, if you're really living a fruitful life, you're like a tree planted in Eden, bearing fresh fruit every month. In 2007, um, I received an invitation to speak at a youth and young adult conference in Manchester, England. And when I got the phone call, um, I remember saying, hey, listen, I really don't have a lot of time. And, and they said, oh, Jared, we'll, we'll literally, we'll fly you in and out. Um, I had to be back for basically to preach the weekend here. And so I agreed to do it. I said, hey, listen, I'll do it if you fly my wife with me. And so they bought us airline tickets. We literally flew in, landed um, that day. I preached for two and a half days straight. And then I had them book me a flight like right back to be get back to Rockford. And, and the, the conference coordinator... Uh, told me that when we were at the conference, he goes, listen, I'm going to have my father drive you to the hotel, or excuse me, from the hotel to the airport in Manchester to get back. And so a knock came on our hotel door after the conference was done, and uh, I opened the door, and I heard this voice and this gentleman say, Peter Cunningham at your service. And I don't know if you can get more English name than Peter Cunningham. Peter Cunningham it was an older gentleman. I want you to picture him. He had a white beard. Um, he had brown trousers that were all wrinkled and a wrinkled v-neck sweater and a nice shirt underneath with a tie. And he wore an English driver's hat and an overcoat. And he spoke with this like thick, thick English accent. And I thought, oh my gosh, if I'm going to like look up in the dictionary the definition of English gentleman, there's going to be a picture of Peter Cunningham. I mean like this is like literally, he, it was like out of a movie kind of a thing. And, and so we get in Peter's car, and, and obviously they drive on the other side of the road, and he you know, sat in the other seat than what I'm used to, and, and, and we're driving down the road, and this older gentleman, he's driving like a bat out of hell. No joke. I mean, like seriously, he is just like, he is just like driving. And, and there they have highways, but they also have these like, they have like these little like roads that do this through the countryside. We're going through, you know, these roads, 
and he's talking to me about his, um, his, his six children, his nine grandchildren, and 50% of the time he's looking at me, and 50% of the time he's looking at the road. No joke. And uh, he started telling me his story from where he was born in England to when he was a teenager to his profession to having, you know, getting married and having kids and grandkids and all this kind. And I mean, the guy is just like energy in motion, you know, and, and, and he's speaking about how he came to faith in Jesus and how Jesus has changed his life. And then he stops and he looks at me as we're driving, by the way, he looks at me and he goes, Jeremy, he goes, I want to let you know something. And I'm thinking, great, look at the road. (laughs) He's like, I want you to know something. He goes, I would never want to go back and do it all over again. And I'm not even going to imitate the English accent because whenever I try to imitate an accent, it always just ends up sounding Spanish. And to me, I don't know why, you know. But he said, I wouldn't want to go back and be 15. Jeremy, I would not want to go back and be 35. I wouldn't want to be 45. I wouldn't want to be 55. He said, I am going to be 65 years old next week. And I want you to know, life is beautiful. And I am blessed. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. And he went on to tell us about how God has been with him every single step of the way. And yet, his life was full of a lot of battles and a lot of challenges. Talked about his uh, grandkid that had been diagnosed with MD and that... And that really the doctors weren't sure he was going to live past the age of 12 or 15 years old. And he just turned 15 that year. And he talked about how God had been faithful even in the battles. And then he looks at me and he goes, Jeremy, I want you to know this. In tough times, this is my solution. Number one, he goes, I get on my knees and pray. He goes, when I face hardship, he goes, I get on my knees and pray. Number two, what do I do is I listen to God when I'm on my knees and I read his word. And he said, number three, whatever he tells me to do, I do it. (laughs) He goes, right there. He goes, that will solve every problem in your life. It doesn't mean the problems are going to go away, but you will navigate your way through those problems. Get on your knees and pray. Listen to God's word and then do it. And I'm like, yes, sir. Strategic disconnection. And on the flight home back over the Atlantic, come back here uh, to, to City First, I was thinking about Peter's words, and I thought, you know what? I haven't met a lot of people like Peter. I meet a lot of people that later on in life, they have all these regrets. And, and I'm sure Peter does too. But I was like, man, he had such energy for life. And he was so happy. And he was fulfilled. And he's, his life was fruitful. And he said, I'm blessed. And something on the inside of me said, that's the way it's supposed to be. I'm sitting there on this airline And I'm flying back in this airplane. I'm thinking, that's the way life is supposed to be. God, I want to be like Peter someday. When I turn 65, I want to be able to look back and go, I don't have regrets. Oh, yeah, there's things I do different. But you know what? I wouldn't want to be 15 again and do it all over. I wouldn't want to be 35 again and do it all over. But rather, when I turn 65, I want to be like Peter, Jesus. Jesus, I want to be like Peter. I want to be like Peter Cunningham. And I want to be able to say, I did it right. By God's grace, I did it right. And, and, and I don't know. I don't even know if Peter's still alive. I mean, he'd be pushing 80 now. Um, but I will tell you that the memory of that car drive still lives in me even today in 2021. And, uh, and you know what? That conversation, that conversation I had with him kind of emphasized the truth. I really want to drive home today, and that is this. Is that happiness is a byproduct of a fruitful life. That when your life is full of the right kind of God fruit, 
guess what? You have happiness. And you can say, I'm blessed. Have you noticed that no one's happy anymore? <laughs> I mean, it just, it just seems like everybody's mad. Everybody's ticked. I realize we've been through a really, a really crappy 20 months. Can I say crappy? Is that okay? All right, it's been a really crappy 20 months. That's actually the sanitized version of the description, okay? It, it, it's been really, it's really been a, a yucky, a crappy 20 months. But this is what I know is that, is that a lot of people now, we're just, we're just angry, we're full of angst, we're disappointed. And I recently heard somebody say this, I thought it was very profound. They said, the reason why this country is so dissatisfied is because it's impossible to keep 330 million kings and queens happy. I thought, wow. Because this is the thing, in America we think we're the kings and we're the queens. Like we're in charge. In fact, most of the apps that are on your smartphone point to you. It's always about me, 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 right? It's about my happiness. We, we think about ourselves a lot. In fact, out of every generation that's ever lived and walked the face of the earth, we think about ourselves more than any other generation, at least that we could research and know. And we write more about ourselves, think about ourselves, you know, kind of assess ourselves, how we're doing. And so we kind of like, we kind of like think we're kings and queens. And here's what I know about kings and queens. They tend to be entitled, and, 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 and they tend to expect a certain type of lifestyle. Like if you're a king, you, you expect a certain type of lifestyle. If you're a queen, you expect a, a certain type of lifestyle. And, and here's what I also know is when that lifestyle does not materialize or become a reality, the kings and queens get disappointed and frustrated about not getting what their unrealistic expectations promised them. And so they become unhappy. Maybe that's why the Bible never calls us kings and queens. Instead, the Bible calls us servants. Because servants, their life mission is to bless others. And Jesus himself said this, quote, The first shall be last, and the last, the servants, shall be first. Maybe the last will be first to be happy. Because they make it their life's mission to bless others. You know, I don't know what... You know, again, if Peter Cunningham's alive, but, but, but maybe, maybe we can understand some things from Peter Cunningham um, that you're just now being introduced to this gentleman. Maybe he didn't buy into the myth, the myth that happiness comes from a struggle-free life. Because that's a myth. Maybe he didn't buy into that myth, and maybe that's why he, he felt blessed, is that he didn't believe that the perfect life or the struggle-free life or the life that he, he, he wants, uh, that maybe didn't materialize, that that somehow will bring happiness because, you know, a lot of us believe that if we have a life that is struggle-free, then that means we're, we're uh, having a life that is happy, a life that's carefree with no problems, and then, then I'll be happy. But this is the thing. Researchers have discovered, and, and this is, these aren't even Christian researchers. This is just research, all right? Research has discovered that our circumstances, our job, where we live, how much money we make in our age only accounts for 10% of the differences in our happiness levels. Only 10%. It only, it, those things only move the needle of happiness 10%. Where you live, the circumstances you have, the money that is in your bank account only moves your happiness level 10%. Isn't that crazy? That means that, that literally people that have it quote-unquote easier aren't necessarily happier. And people that maybe have more difficult circumstances or less money or a worse job aren't necessarily more unhappy than those that do. 
Researchers also found that 40%, listen to this, 40% of what influences happiness is intentional behavior. In other words, right choices. You know what that tells me? That your choices have a four times greater influence on your happiness level than your circumstances do. Four times greater. Meaning the choices you make have four times more impact than the circumstances you're living in when it comes to happiness. I don't know. Maybe Peter Cunningham didn't buy into the myth that a struggle-free life brings happiness. Maybe he didn't buy into the myth that happiness comes from having more money and more stuff. See, that's, that's kind of the American thing that we believe. We believe that happiness comes if I get this, or I attain this, or I drive this, or I live in this, or I wear this, right? And, and, and here's the thing. In the last 70 years, um, the, the economic growth in America has increased exponentially. In fact, compared to 1950, we now in America are approximately twice as wealthy as Americans 70 years ago. Twice as wealthy. I mean, like, for example... One of these things that we all probably have in our back pocket or in our purse, this was a significant amount of a down payment on a house back in 1950. And now we drop it into a punch bowl and then we just get a new one. So here's the thing. We, we, we got to understand that, that we have a lot more wealth now in America, but this is what's interesting. The last 70 years, um, sociologists and psychologists will tell you that happiness levels have not increased. So even though we're twice as wealthy as Americans... We are not twice as happy. In fact, happiness level is pretty much flatlined over the last 70 years. We have bigger homes, we have better cars, and we wear nicer stuff, and we own nicer stuff, and yet there's no significant increase in happiness. In fact, there's this thing called the hedonic treadmill. You can look it up, and the hedonic treadmill, this is not Bible, by the way. This is, this is psychology for a second here and sociology, all right? The hedonic treadmill is this. It's basically, according to this theory, as a person makes more money, expectations and desires rise in tandem, which results in no permanent gain in happiness. So, so as we make more money, we want better sweaters and better purses and better cars and better carpet and better TVs, but yet at the end of the day, as these things increase, our happiness levels we think will increase, but they don't, is what that's saying. And really, a lot of times, happiness is determined by what you focus on, they find in these studies. And in life, there's really two ambitions, generally speaking. There's intrinsic and extrinsic ambitions. Another way of saying that is internal and external ambitions. And can I tell you, they're in competition with one another. Um, and, and all of us primarily focus on one of the two. We're either focused extrinsically or intrinsically. So extrinsically, external, means this, that we're focused primarily on making money or image or material things or being insta-famous or power or status or reputation and personality, all those kind of things, almost more external. We could focus on those things. Or we could be primarily influenced instead internally. So the intrinsic would be things like personal growth, spiritual growth, uh, choices um, internally that, that are ones of significance, uh, relationships, generosity, being a generous person, helping others, being philanthropic. These are intrinsic kind of goals, you could say. And, and here's the thing, both extrinsic and intrinsic goals produce fruit. 
But here's the question. Is it significant fruit? And is it the fruit that can bring true happiness? There's a lot of pressure in our culture right now. And by the way, there's a reason why I'm preaching this right before we go into the holiday season, you could say. There's a lot of pressure to put your emphasis and your, all your intentionality and attach your soul to extrinsic ambitions and not intrinsic ambitions. But if you do focus on the external, just getting more money, more things, more stuff, more power, more reputation, if you do that, then the Bible says you're going to probably walk with the counsel of the wicked and stand in the way of the sinners and sit in the seat of the scoffers because these things don't produce the kind of life that you and I really need and really desire. And they found out, again, researchers found out that the more people focused on extrinsic ambition, they reported less happiness because it's not significant. And so, really, I'm reading all these like studies and I'm thinking, well, this is what the Bible's been saying for 2,000 years. This is what Jesus has been saying for 2,000 years. In fact, he puts it this way. He said this in Mark chapter 8, or it's recorded in Mark chapter 8, quoting Jesus. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? And then he just leaves that hanging, right? Like, like that's kind of the, the end of his sermon, or at least a pause. Is anything more valuable than your soul. In other words, internally. Internally, we need to have fruit on the inside. It's more important than outside ambition. So how do we have a life that's uh, fruitful, you could say? Which, by the way, produces happiness. Well, let's go back to Psalms here in a moment. And uh, really, the first thing is this, that that Psalm said to be planted. Where your plant is important. The tree was not planted in a desert. The tree was planted next to living water. So in other words, we must be planted next to Jesus. We must be planted in his word. We must be planted in his church. Because what we're really doing today, ladies and gentlemen, is we are reminding ourselves of what's really important. And then Monday through Saturday we tend to have that leak or we begin to forget because what? The craziness of life. And then we come back together on Sunday or we come back together throughout the week whenever we gather at City First here and we come back and we're reminded of what's important. And so that's what we're doing today. In fact, it even says in that verse that the man that's planted next to living water, guess what? Indulges and takes in the word of God, the instruction, the law of God and he delights in it Day and night he meditates on it. See, we got to remind it of this often because, again, it leaks. Because the world constantly, cultures constantly tell you, this is what's going to make you happy. This is what's going to make you happy. And Jesus says, no, no, instead being planted. Being planted is what's going to bear much fruit, and that will bring happiness. Second thing is this, is that the, that passage in Psalms talks about that we are to aim for more significance, not just more stuff. That's the Jeremy translation of it, all right? But more significance, not just more stuff. Uh, you, know, you know, fruit, I was thinking about this. What does fruit do? Fruit feeds people. So the fruit of your life should feed people. 
The fruit of your life should bless those around you. The cubicle next to you, the neighbor next to you, the community you're in, your life group, your church, the place where you work, that they, they should be blessed because of the fruit of your life, right? I mean, think about that. The fruit that God wants you to have helps others. And so that's really living a life of significance because someday when we all pass from this life to the next life and they're hosting a memorial service for us, they're not going to talk about all your stuff. They're not going to talk about all your stuff. They're going to talk about what significance you had in their, in their life, right? So here's the thing. This is not an anti-stuff message. It's okay to have nice stuff. In fact, some of you have nice stuff, and that is okay. You should not feel guilty about it. As long as that stuff doesn't have you. Does that make sense? As long as that stuff, you don't buy into the lie that that's what gives you significance. That that's what is your source. No, 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 no. Listen, I have nice stuff. You have nice stuff. Comparatively to the rest of the world, we all got nice stuff. Okay? But here's the thing. The stuff shouldn't have us. So it's okay to have stuff, but it's more important that we have significance and that we use our stuff to build a life of significance. Number three is this. Pursue making a difference in the name of Jesus. You know, um, it's kind of become trendy to do good lately. Like even, even people that are far from faith, they're like, well, we need to do good. And I always want to ask this question. Where did you get that ethic? Because... You know, if you look through human history, um, for the most part, there was not a pursuit of doing good until Jesus came along. He started talking about loving your neighbor and doing these kind of things. And it's kind of interesting. It seems like society has hijacked Jesus' thoughts but omitted him from the equation. In other words, it's like, well, let's just do good. Let's do nice things. And, and again, that's important, but... I always am like, where did you get that ethic? Did you get that from evolution? Is that Darwinism by any chance? Like, where did you get this idea of, like, treating others with respect? Like, where did you get that at all? Like, where, where, where do you get this idea that, 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 that genders should be equal, that men and women should be equal, and one should not be, like, subordinate to another? Because that sure wasn't the Roman Empire. So where did you get that? Well, you got it from Jesus. And here's the thing, if we are to do good, then I would add to this that you do it in the name of Jesus and give him credit for it, because he's the one that came up with the idea of loving your neighbor. He even came up with the idea of loving your enemies. Now, culture hasn't gotten to that point, and they'd rather just cancel their enemies. But, but here's the thing, here's the thing, when you do good, do it in the name of Jesus. Jesus said this when, you, when I was in prison, now he's talking metaphorically, when I was in prison, you visited me. When, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. And then he goes on to say, when you give a cup of cold water in my name. Not just give a cup of cold water, but give a cup of cold water, but point it back to Jesus. When you do that, Jesus said, I notice it. You know, blessing comes with a responsibility. And blessing can be looked at as either like you have a life that's a bucket or you have a life that's a conduit. Or you could say a pipe. Well, you see, blessing is either something you just accumulate like a bucket. 
But after a while, the bucket kind of fills up. You don't really get much more. Or it's like a conduit or a pipe that as blessing comes, you, you funnel it and you create significant moments and significant actions that impact other people's life, right? And this is what I know. If your life is more like a conduit, then God can just keep pouring blessing over and over because guess what? It doesn't fill up, but rather instead that blessing keeps flowing through you and there's a constant flow to help bless others. In fact, this is reaffirmed by Father Abraham who had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. God says this, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. Some of you are like going, well, you're just talking to all the affluent people in the room. No, I'm talking to all of us in the room because we're all blessed to some degree. And if we hang on to the blessing, it's all we got. But if we say, no, blessing is like a funnel. It's like a conduit. It just funnels through me. Guess what? God keeps pouring more and more. Sir John Marks, or Sir John Marks Templeton, who was the inventor of Templeton Mutual Funds, um, some of you might know or heard of him, uh, lived many years ago. He, he wrote this. I mean, he was a great businessman, multi-multi-millionaire. He said, I know a lot of people who started out to make themselves happy, and they almost all failed. If they started out to make themselves happy, they become self-centered, and that leads to failure. But people who start out to make someone else happy, they become happy. If you want success in money or success in anything, the way to do it is to try to give rather than to try to get. Wow, right? It's no accident that the word miser and the word miserable come from the same Latin word. Miser and miserable. See, Americans, we fall into this trap that the blessing is just for me. It's just accumulating stuff. And Jesus comes and turns it upside down. And, you know, he says this in Mark chapter 4. He said, listen carefully to what I'm saying and be wary of the shrewd advice. Shrewd advice that tells you how to get ahead in the world on your own. Giving, not getting, is the way. Generosity begets generosity. The funnel, the, the conduit, generosity, guess what, brings more generosity. And stinginess impoverishes. The happiest people are the ones that decide to live outside of themselves, not focusing on themselves, but using whatever blessing that God gave to help others. It reminds me of that poem by a guy by the name of C.T. Studd. How would you like to have the last name Studd? Hey, what's your name? Mr. Studd. That's what, what it is. What's yours? You know, C.T. Studd wrote this many years ago. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You know, as we close... That's the reason why, unashamedly, every time during this year as we enter into the month of December, it becomes our legacy season here at City First. I do this on purpose, by the way, because as a pastor, which really means that I'm a shepherd, I'm trying to lead us somewhere. I'll tell you where I'm trying to lead us in this Christmas season that has become so full of consumerism and chaos and craziness and Black Fridays and online shopping and getting the list done and checking it twice. In the midst of all that, my agenda, my agenda, I'm showing my cards here, I want us to remember the real reason of the season, and that is the fact that Jesus came to our rescue and that God so loved the world that he gave. Love 
requires generosity. So I'm calling all of us to be generous this season. And we do this every year. We have this thing called a legacy end of year offering. And it will be next week and the week after that. We do it over two weeks because of people's pay periods. It works better. That's, that's your advice that you gave to us to do. We used to only do it one weekend, but we do it two because wherever it lands, it becomes a little bit easier for people to give. You say, what's the end of your offering? Well, um, really, um, it, it's a reminder. It's a reminder that we have a, a life that we want to have full of fruit, and that fruit is something that needs to be shared. On top of it being a reminder, it's also a calibration. It calibrates us to the real reason of the season and the real reason why God has given us blessing. I will bless you so that you'll be a blessing. And the last thing, it's an opportunity. An opportunity to be able to bless other people. And I want to show you something here in a moment that last year's legacy offering became an opportunity that actually materialized into helping people in the name of Jesus. See, when we give in the legacy offering, it helps to fund all of our compassion efforts throughout the entire year and many of them that we do during the Christmas season. Well, as you know, 2020 and 2021 have been interesting and uh, there's been a lot of need. So because of your giving last year, I want to show you how we helped an organization called Convoy of Hope. And Convoy of Hope was able to impact hundreds of thousands of people, again, partially because of what City First did. Watch this. Hi, this is John French with Convoy of Hope. We want to say thank you to the City First Legacy team. Thank you so much for your amazing generosity. God has used your legacy offering to be a part of a global movement of compassion, which has been truly remarkable. Thank you again for your trust in Convoy. We love and appreciate you so much. 2021 has been an unpredictable year. Because of our united act of compassion, Convoy of Hope has reached more hurting people and brought them more hope than ever before. We've fed 387,000 children every school day in 17 different countries. We've reached over 26,000 women and girls around the world through women's empowerment efforts. And we have responded to more than 480 disasters worldwide with more than 500,000 people served and approximately 7 million meals distributed. Thank you again for your kindness. Together, we are showing millions of people the love of Jesus. It is a privilege to partner with you in giving people lasting hope. God bless. pretty amazing. You may not know John. John actually attended our City First Leadership College many years ago. He's alumni of our leadership college. He now works for Convoy of Hope and helps coordinate all that. That's just one, by the way, that's just one, one, one very small effort that took place because of legacy. There's literally dozens and dozens of compassion efforts that our church was able to do because of your generosity. So guess what? December 5th is coming next weekend and the weekend after that is the 12th and it's our legacy end of your offering. I would like you to do, do four things for me. First of all, pray. Pray and just say, God, what is my part? Small, large, it doesn't matter. What is the part that I can play? What can I give so that literally hundreds of thousands of people can be impacted with the message and the love of Jesus Christ? Compassion efforts that really do make a difference. Rescuing people out of human trafficking. Taking care of the homeless. 
feeding those. Like even this last week, we fed every single homeless person in the city of Rockford through the Rockford Rescue Mission. We funded that meal on Thanksgiving for every single, again, because of legacy. And we partner with organizations that do it in the name of Jesus. Do you understand that? Second thing you want to do is, you know what, plan. Because you got to budget for generosity. Generosity doesn't just happen. you gotta, you got to think about it. And then the third thing you do is commit. Sometime this week, just say, okay, God, I commit to it. I commit. I'm going to give this amount because I want it to change people's lives. I want to show people the love of Jesus. And then lastly, on the number four is give. Next weekend or the weekend after that, or you can give now if you want to. In fact, you know what? You can give early to Legacy, and if you earmark it to Legacy, they have the information on the screen. Um, it will go towards that effort. But I believe this. I believe that, again, this becomes a reminder. This becomes a calibration time for us, and it becomes an opportunity. Let's make our first and our best gift of the season go to Jesus. Why? Well, maybe so that someday we can be like Peter Cunningham and say, I don't want to go back and do it over again. I had a full life, a life of significance, not just accumulating stuff, but I made a difference. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for our time together. I thank you that this is such a generous church. Thank you, Lord God, that you want us to live a life that is truly fruitful, and that fruitful life brings happiness. We're blessed. Lord, I ask that you would help us, each and every one of us, to think what we can do this week. And next week and the week after, that we would come with an over and above offering so that we can share the gospel with even more people, that we can take care of even more children, that we can teach more people about you, Jesus, and yet meet tangible needs in the meantime. Lord, we want to live a life of significance not just a life of stuff. We love you in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Amen. Amen.